0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Harley, and Harley was raised by a know-it-all narcissistic mother. It's a story of enmeshment, invalidation, coming out, gaslighting, self-acceptance, and the power of art. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Harley. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good. And if you want to be a guest on our show, like Harley is today, Please do go to our website at narcissistapocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page where there's all of these instructions. Please read them all and send us an email at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Just like Harley did. She sent everything in that form, and I think her For it, and today we are going to hear your story, and it's a family story. Your mom was a Mr. or Mrs. Wright on Lundy Bancroft's list of abuser types, and your story is one of revelations, and it was done in steps, figuring out what was actually going on in your life, and there was a heavy dose of enmeshment and trusting that your mom's word is the truth or, or was the gospel. And it's a hard thing to see through uh, when you're going through that long-term conditioning. So really big thank you for being here once again, Harley. So without further ado, Harley, the floor is now yours.
1: So starting at the beginning, I grew up in a Jewish family and we were relatively isolated because we were... We were practicing, but we weren't as religious as the rest of the community that I grew up in. Um, And so there were only like a couple families who were willing to socialize with us. (laughs) And I was homeschooled. Um, And so, you know, the my early childhood experience was just there was a lot of isolation way before I even knew that there was any dysfunction happening in the household. I very quickly caught on that, you know, who my parents were, and especially who my mom was around other people was different than who she was at home. And I knew that when we would go over to other places for Shabbat dinner, she would, you know, her her focus was less on me, which was, was, was a bit of a relief. Um, And also she kind of projected this um very like friendly and warm persona that definitely you know was part of how she was a how she was a parent to me. Um, But at home that persona would flip uh very quickly versus when she was around other people, she maintained that persona for the duration of, you know, however long we were with these with this other family. You know, so that, that was something that I was aware of (laughs) before, you know, I, I realized that that was kind of a red flag and there was a lot of conflict in the household. you know, between my parents. Um, and when I was nine, they got divorced. And it's funny because when I would tell other people that they would always feel sorry. And I remember like, always be like, no, no, they, like, they should have gotten divorced. (laughs) Like (laughs) even at nine years old, I was like, no, these two people should not be living together. (laughs)
0: What what was their relationship like when uh, they were fighting? Who, were you able at a very young age to discern who was on the receiving end of things uh, and who was starting things? Or were you um, really not able to understand those things at that time?
1: I think for the most part, I was just... Um, You know, most children are very self-involved. So like at the time I was just kind of, I'd be playing with my dolls or reading my books or even like watching a movie or something. Um, And then I would just like hear them fighting, you know? I think it was pretty like equal, you know, they were just yelling at each other. And, you know, it's funny on an intellectual level, they always were extremely compatible on an intellectual level. It was like the second that either one of them Got emotional, it just like that's when things spiraled completely out of whack um because both of them both of them have very intense anger issues uh and so you know like at at one point um a couple of years before my parents got divorced, my dad had punched a hole in the wall, so you know there was. There was a lot of tension, um, you know, versus my mom wouldn't really get physically violent, but she would just yell and scream and use a lot of just really aggressive language and a lot of cuss words and, and all of that. So there was just a lot of that combative energy.
0: So eventually you said your parents do get divorced and your dad becomes a Christian,
1: Yes. He, yes. So (laughs) my dad's relationship with religion has always been interesting. Um, you know, he, he is a Jew. He grew up not particularly religious. Um, when, you know, he, he grew up in South Africa and during apartheid, he was, he knew he was going to get recruited to like defend apartheid and he didn't want to do that. You know, he, he, at least at that time, you know, relieved really strongly inequality and he didn't. He didn't want to be a part of that. And so he fled to Canada. And I believe it was in Canada that he started really getting into Judaism. Um, Then there were like mutual pen pals that connected my dad and my mom. They, They connected intellectually, were very compatible, got married, emotional stuff happened. So then after my parents divorced, my dad got involved in Christianity. I don't really remember exactly how that happened. I suspect it was that he somehow started finding a community like in, in a church. And so that, you know, that kind of compelled him to, to get more into that. Also, he always enjoyed learning about different, um, different ideologies, different religions, um, and kind of, and and just hearing people out, you know? Um, and so he, became a rabbi, I think before I was born or when I was very young. Um, and he, he's continued to be a rabbi since, and he's also a pastor. So he'll like, when I was growing up, you know, he would give talks at churches and he would give talks at temples and, you know, he, he's always had a, an open-minded and eclectic perspective when it comes to religion and difference of, of differences of, of thought.
0: And when it comes to your mom uh, what was her upbringing like?
1: She grew up in Israel. Um, she was born in the States, but but grew up in Israel. And so grew up, you know, very religious. And she had, like, stayed, continued with that um, through the marriage with my dad. You know, I also do want to add, I think that there are certain, um, you know, there were certain patriarchal structures um, that were reinforced in the marriage that definitely made things harder on my mom you know and and as abusive as she was at that time and in later years i'm i'm also sympathetic to to what she's you know been through also both my parents had incredibly incredibly abusive childhoods um in, incredibly traumatic no wonder they were constantly fighting they had no sense of what healthy conflict looked like at all healthy conflict resolution they had no idea how to process their own emotions. They had no idea how to respond when another person was emotionally kind of elevated, uh, you know, when, when the other person's emotions were escalated, you know, no wonder things turned out the way they, the way they did. Um, and so after my parents got divorced, my mom started really questioning her, her perspectives. Um, and you know, from pretty much from, from the divorce on, you know, she classifies herself as, you know, spiritual, not religious. Um, She doesn't really subscribe to any organized religious, any organized religion, any sort of, you know, specific uh, perspective like that.
0: So you were living with your mom at the age of nine to 10 years old, and then eventually you go and move in with your dad. So tell us what happened there.
1: My mom wanted to pursue her own like business stuff. Um, and so she, you know, so so then I just went to live with my dad because my mom wanted to like do her own thing.
0: And as a child at the age of nine or 10 years old, did you feel abandoned by your mom? Like who did you want to live with?
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, I was, because I'd grown up, in a house where there was so much conflict and so much intense emotion. I learned from a very young age that there wasn't really any room for my own emotions, even, um, you know, to backtrack all the way to when I was like literally an infant and a toddler. Um, my mom had severe depression where she like wouldn't get out of bed. So you know, even at that age, even at like a pre-verbal age, I was kind of recognizing that like, there's not really room for my feelings. (laughs) Like, you know, mom has big feelings. Um, and, and sometimes dad does too. And, you know, I, I, there's not really room for my feelings. And so from a very young age, I just, I just accepted things. I didn't, you know, I I wanted to be a, a good kid. Um, and so I just accepted the way things were. So when I moved in with my dad, it was like simultaneously heartbreaking. And also I was completely numb to it at the same time.
0: So eventually you are living with your dad and a health issue occurs. So between the time of your health issue, which you'll explain to us what happened. And, um, when you moved out from living with your mom, how many, um, years or, or t- what's the time in between? And are you having any sort of relationship with your mom within that time?
1: So it was around like age, like 10 to 12. Um, and so over 10 to 12, 10 to 13, so, like, over those two to three years, um, I had very little communication with her. There'd be occasional phone calls, um, but she wouldn't really visit because um, she lived two hours away from my dad. So, so yeah, it was just kind of, um, you know, with my dad. Um,
0: and what's your relationship and, yeah. like with your dad during that time? Is it good?
1: Yeah, it's good. Um, I mean, you know, he... he always, um, you know, there was always this sort of emotional distance, anything that I was interested in, he would fully support, um, and, you know, pay for classes, you know, try to find like the best teacher he could, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so there was that emotional distance that made things hard. Um, and at the same time, you know, when there was an activity we could bond over, that, that was the, the the best of, of him. Um, he also loved teaching. He taught healthy cooking classes at like the local community center. I'd go with him and I'd help him. Those, those are some of my fondest memories from that time, honestly. And, you know, he also taught like high school, he taught all kinds of subjects and I'd go with him, you know, and so, you know, getting to see him teach or cook or both, um, you know, that was him at, at his best. And then, when he wasn't in that teacher role, I think he kind of struggled with who he, who he was, um, as, as a lot of people, as a lot of adults who had traumatized childhoods do, you know, he just kind of struggled with his own sense of self. And so, um, so yeah, so that, that contributed to the, the complex emotional state of everything.
0: Yeah, so your state at this point before the hospital aspect of things is you grew up in a chaotic environment. You're an only child. You are self-soothing yourself or figuring out ways uh, to do that. You are uh, have this avoidant dad. And in some ways, you're left to yourself and your own coping your own imagination a hundred
1: percent yeah a hundred percent i um you know for most of the day when i wasn't like sewing or reading i was watching tv um and you know i think part of what contributed to that is one of the few moments when my parents were still buried that were positive is when we would go to the local blockbuster and rent a comedy and we'd watch it together um and so those you know for that for those 90 minutes there was no fighting there was no arguing we were just there watching a funny movie talk you know commenting about the movie as we're watching it talking about the characters talking about the acting you know we're we're one of those people who like when we watch we like pause and we're like oh my god we like talk about the story like we talk about the characters we talk about the mystery who we think did it you know like we were able to interact with each other in this peaceful way and often laugh together. Um, And so that positive association continued so that, you know, when I was living with my dad and, and feeling even more lonely, (laughs) um, I, you know, comedies uh, and stories in general, were just a a big source of comfort for me.
0: It's your safe space.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So as I've stated before, uh, eventually you end up in the hospital. So what happens here?
1: So, yeah, when I was much younger, I was diagnosed with this heart condition, uh, supraventricular tachycardia, which basically means that my heart will just spontaneously race 200 to 300 beats a minute. As soon as my dad was taking me to the hospital, he notified my mom who um, immediately, you know, got in a taxi and, and came over. And when she showed up, she had this like, big epic story about how you know she flagged a taxi down and she hopped in and as she was telling the driver everything he's he was like you know don't even like this rides on me don't pay for the ride you're going to see your sick daughter in the hospital like hope everything's okay take that money and like buy her something you know like don't 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 pay me um which was incredibly sweet of him to do um anyway so she went to the gift shop and she bought me this bracelet. Um and it it you know it's pretty sparkly, you know, bracelet. Um and she gave it to me and and you know she gave it to me and she's telling this big story, you know. And I'm just there, you know, <laughs> I'm also just I mean I'm, I'm already emotionally numb because that's just the state that I'm living in and then on top of that I'm also Exhausted. The, the drug that stops your heart, when your heart isn't eating, it feels like every muscle in your body is nauseous at the same time. It feels so weird. So I was just fatigued um, physically as well as emotionally. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, I, thank you. It's very pretty. Um, but my mom had the impression that it was a stress response in response to not seeing her for a prolonged period of time. So that hospital visit prompted her to work out a, a, a visiting schedule where she would visit uh, my dad and I and like stay with us for like a weekend. I think like every other week. So like twice a month, you know, she would stay with us for, um, you know, for a couple of days and then, and then go back and go back to her life. You know, at the time I was happy to see her. I mean, you know, take any, 12 year old child away from their mom for a few months and, you know, then have their mom show up again, they're going to be happy to see her. And and so I was, you know, on top of all of the, the emotional and physical fatigue, I was really happy to see her. And when, you know, when you're a child and your parent just leaves, and, you know, regardless of how easy or hard it is, when you have the impression that your parent, left you really easily. Um it it erodes at your sense of self and your sense of value as a as a as your own person. You know, it it kind of shifts your self-perception so that now you see yourself as someone who is easy to leave. And so that, you know, I, I think that contributed to the depression that I struggled with in the ongoing years. Seeing it in context of events that occurred later on, I see it as more of a sort of a this this big grand gesture that, you know, I can't say for sure, but but almost felt more for her than for me. You know that it was it it was her being a good mother more than her being there for me.
0: So it's the perception that it's all for show of what was going on. And eventually you end up moving in with your mom. So walk us through that.
1: Yeah. So she ends up finding, which is to her credit, she ends up finding this incredible high school that to this day, I am incredibly lucky to have attended. And I'm I'm very grateful that I attended because it allowed me to start becoming myself, um, even in, in small ways. And so she got me enrolled in that and that school was near her. So obviously at that point I had to move in with her in order to attend school. And, you know, that's also where I encountered, uh, the first gay person I ever met, you know, he was this lovely, sweet boy out, you know, totally out. Um, and I remember just like hanging out with him and other students and just being like, Yeah, why am I like thinking to myself, like, why am I against gay marriage? Gay people are totally cool, you know, because I'd grown up religious where there was like this all this shame and like, you know, gay people are bad and gay marriage is bad. Meeting him, I was like, kind of just in one day, I was like, yeah, that that's stupid. I don't think that way anymore. Um, And just in other ways, you know, the school opened up my my eyes to a lot of things. And, you know, that's also when she put a lot of pressure on me to decide what I wanted my career to be. And uh you know, I'm thirteen, so I don't know because <laughs> I'm you know uh, my brain's still like ten years away from even being fully formed you know um and so that that led to a lot of a lot of fights, um which again, in retrospect, I recognize her own business attempts were struggling, failing in these different ways, and so she was projecting those insecurities onto me um. And basically being like, because she regretted, you know, she regretted waiting, waiting so long to pursue her own, you know, business ventures. And so she was trying to, to remedy that, uh, by living through me. But I was a kid who, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, I like, I like being on stage. It's really fun. It's really fun to connect with these other, um, with the other actors, you know, because when you're, you know, theater allows you to, it takes a lot of societal pressure off. And I was struggling with a lot of social anxiety. Um, And so theater was just, was an outlet for a lot of things. It was, you know, but as she pressures me more and more and, and her abusive coaching, I'm putting that in like air quotes, became more intense and more abusive, um, it, you know, I, I started to lose my interest in theater because I dreaded these home rehearsals. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Whiplash. When I saw that movie, it gave me chills because of like the exact sentences and phrasing and the way that teacher would say things. It was just exactly the way my mom would say things, and she used very aggressive sexual language because, uh, she knew it made me uncomfortable. Um, and so eventually I just gave up on asking her to not use sexual language because, you know, I, I just accepted it. Um, so, you know, so, so the abuse, um, you know, escalates more and she, you know, she, she, she calls me, um, different slurs um, for like she calls me the r slur and, and these different things um occasionally it would get physical um but you know as uh when I was like 15 I got I became taller than her and as soon as I became taller than her all physical abuse stopped um the verbal abuse continued but like as soon as I was physically bigger than her there was no more physical abuse. Um, she, she started getting into the Enneagram, um, at that point. And I also, I just want to clarify like this, uh, her, her take on the Enneagram is not, does not reflect the Enneagram. Um, but she, and, and just yeah. to
0: interrupt here for one second, cause, uh, people, long time listeners to the show know that, uh, we, um, Mention the Enneagram a lot, and it's a personality test for people that uh, don't know. There are nine types in the personality test, and there are two subtypes for each type, um, yeah, number-wise, and then there's three subtypes of those subtypes. So you, your mom typed you as in Enneagram 6.
1: Yes. And so her take, which again is not, like I'm not claiming this as reflective of the actual system itself, but her perspective of the Enneagram um, is that sixes are simultaneously incredibly brilliant and perceptive and also the most convincing liars and highly manipulative. And so that was when I remember her reinforcing that I couldn't tell anyone about our home rehearsals. I couldn't tell anyone about the fights we'd have because if I were to tell anyone else, I would present that information um, in a way that would make her look bad and that would be unfair to her. Um, and so there was, you know, there there was that element. And then that also allowed her to convince me that I can have a perspective that is not like I can convince myself of something that isn't true. So if I feel hurt by something she said, she didn't actually say anything hurtful. I just want to make myself out to be the victim. So I'm choosing to be hurt by what she said so that I can like sulk and like be, like I can manipulate myself into feeling bad for myself. Or like it was, you know, it's it's, it's this very gaslighty mind game sort of, basically convincing me that I couldn't trust myself that because she's a five and five again this is her her perspective because she's a five and fives are about honesty and truth and all these things she knows what's true she knows reality I don't because I'm a six so I can convince myself of anything when I was an adult she was still referencing that you know so for for most of my life, she's been um, gaslighting me in that way. And also, there's, you know, when you're when you're told that you are manipulative and that you can't trust yourself, um, and you can't trust your perception of the world, you kind of you're like, I'm 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 like I'm a monster. You know, you you kind of see yourself as like, oh my god, like I am this horrible person like I can't trust me because no one can trust me because I'm not trust-trustworthy. So, you know, there it, there was there was all of this, all of this happening at at the same time.
0: And eventually your mom graduates with her masters in clinical mental health counseling with a focus on early childhood Development. And that reinforces everything your mom has actually been saying to you because now she's a real life professional. And from there, you move to California because your mom thinks there'll be better opportunities for you there and better opportunities for her, especially for you when it comes to school. And while you're there, you move around a lot, but your mom doesn't end up getting licensed. And for reasons you actually don't no. And to make ends meet, she becomes a live-in nanny, but there's no room for you there. So then you end up moving in with your godfather who lives uh, in that state. So take us through that.
1: At that point, our relationship had become really deeply enmeshed. But when I moved in, you know, when I moved in with my godfather, he started to see how mom would treat me. And he started telling me, like, hang up when she started screaming at me. But at that point, I was so, you know, I I, I was drinking the Kool-Aid so much and I, I drunk it for so long that I I would I would be sitting there listening to her scream at me and I would be like, I I need to hear this, you know, I need to change the the ways that she's trying to get me to change. If I don't change, I'm gonna be a failure. If I don't change then I'm going to self-sabotage and I'm going to ruin my own life. And I won't even see it because I'll convince myself that I'm not. And then it'll be too late and I'll have ruined my whole life, you know? And so she had really convinced me that she was my saving grace. When I moved in with my godfather, you know, I'm, I'm talking with my mom on the phone every day. That doesn't last very long because like he can't, Stand it when she's like screaming at me, and like literally, it's like it's so loud that he can hear it. So, we very kind of quickly work out that I can only talk to my mom when I'm outside of the apartment. So, that limited her access to me. Um, and so I was forced to start like pursuing my own hobbies, like, I I was forced to kind of spend time doing stuff that I wanted to do you know, I, I, I also want to add that given her history, I think that hiding underneath this, this, this thick layer of abusive bravado, there is a very scared, very insecure child who just wants to be accepted and loved. And I can recognize that and, and You know, I can, I can recognize that there are these brief glimmers where that part of her is, is shown where like, there is a part of her that actually wants to genuinely connect. And thanks to my therapist, I can also acknowledge that the choices she makes have harmed me and harm me to the degree that I allow her access to me. So I, I can, you know, I, I can feel for the part of her that has been so hurt and so traumatized while also recognizing that, you know, I, I can't change her. I can't heal for her. And so, you know, I, I can only, I can only choose, I can only make choices for myself. And so, you know, these are the choices that I make.
0: So eventually you go outside the home, you're doing a a more independent types of, uh, of things. And at the age of 19, you get rejected from an academic program and it kind of crushes you. So what happens from here?
1: Yeah. So, um, in college I had studied to become an American sign language interpreter, um, and that was, you know, I, I was just like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I studied really hard. I worked really hard and I applied to the program and everybody, teachers, friends, everybody was like, Oh my God, you're a shoe in like, you are exactly what they're looking for. And I didn't get in and it just, obviously, you know, academic rejection at that age is, you know, you, you don't have the life experience to kind of have that thick skin yet. So that in and of itself is very daunting and, and can fracture your sense of self a little bit. On top of that, I was just having this like, oh my God, if this doesn't work out, I'm back to square one. And my mom and I are going to incessantly fight and argue about the fact that I don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life. (laughs) Because, you know, from, from the minute that I, that I told her, I want to become an interpreter to you know, being 19 and being rejected, like we fought about other things, but at least we didn't fight about that. Like, at least that was resolved. And then it's like, ah, dang it, you know? And so I, I was just completely, I was just like, what I, like, I was just, I had a very fractured sense of self and I, I didn't know what to do.
0: And it's within this time of not knowing what to do, and you're in this really vulnerable state where you end up meeting this uh, very predatory type of individual, a sexual predatory type of individual at a social for the deaf, and you start dating, and when it comes to your mom in this situation, she doesn't like how much time you're spending with this person, and eventually you do break up with him, and it's a bit of an interesting message that's kind of going on here, because your mom is actually right in this situation, and it is something where not every abuser always is, is going to be uh, wrong, and this sets up a little bit of more of a confusing situation, because you're actually very thankful that you're out of this situation uh, due to your mom, your mom's help, and... know, in this situation, she really did have your back here.
1: Exactly. And like, see, like in retrospect, it's like, see, if you, if you hadn't listened to me, you would still be with him, you know? And so that, that reinforced like, yeah, every, you know, every time that she tells me to do something, it doesn't matter what I think. If she tells me to do something, she's right. And if I disobey her, I'm going to live to regret it. And also this is when mom uh, has my, my little sister. So I'm, I was 20 years old when my sister was born. I'm just kind of overall like lost. And so, you know, she, I, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm extra confused about life. So she kind of becomes this like anchor form even more than before this anchor of like, okay, clearly, you know, you mom guide me in the right direction. So I'm, I'm just going to keep following you you know, after after I I get out of that, uh um, I'm randomly at a uh a bookstore and I'm browsing like the music section section with like twenty dollars of birthday money, just like burning a hole in my pocket. And I see that Pink's funhouse album, uh it's like just got just it just came out. And I was like, oh Pink, like I think I know her. And so I just decided to buy it on a whim and I took it home and I just like immediately fell in love uh because her music expresses a lot of those feelings like the anger the sadness the loneliness the confusion the anxiety the the kind of trying to be a good person while also feeling broken and just all of those feelings that mom had taught me were bad and and shameful you know I I started watching interviews with her and I, I just gained so much respect for her and you know I very quickly recognized her as as a role model for me um who was obviously this is a you know parasocial relationship, but she was allowing she was giving space to a lot of the feelings that I felt like I wasn't allowed to have um and you know I, I listened to her music just regularly in general, but especially after every time that mom and I would fight, I would like that. Pink's music or even like watching interviews with her, that was my comfort. Also, uh, in 2013, I got to see Pink live, um, on her Truth About Love tour. And I randomly strike up a conversation with this woman standing next to me. I'll call her Grace. Um, it's not, obviously not her name, but she actually ends up hiring me to work with her, um, in her home office. And so I start spending time. Uh, like at her house, you know she really she treats me like part of her family, and she is always telling me how sweet and thoughtful and kind hearted and just lovely i am and and how grateful she is for the ways that I help her and and just how just how good of a person I am, and it's so consistent uh versus you know, with mom, she would, she would hype me up. And then like, literally, you know, half an hour later, she'd be tearing me down again. You know, it was very like, oh my God, you're brilliant. And you're, you're so da da -da -da," all these things. And then it would, it would do a 180 super fast versus with grace. It was, it was consistent that I, I started to get this messaging that I'm a good person and I, I'm not a bad person. So that, that helped. Um, I still had a long way to go uh, in that healing, but, but that definitely helped.
0: So moving out from your mom and in with your godfather was the first seedling, let's say, of something being implanted in your head that what's going on here is wrong. And now your relationship with this music is the second seedling. You know, the first one was telling you what's going on here is wrong. The second one is a building block of here's this person singing and giving me a voice or at least giving me space to figure out what is going on and maybe most importantly, who I am as a person, which then you are a child of the internet. And what did you find?
1: Uh, so when I, I'm about 24 at this point, I'm learning about feminism, not just feminism, but intersectional feminism, uh, which means, you know, fighting for the rights of all women and also recognizing that women from different socioeconomic backgrounds different you know uh race racial backgrounds um different you know personal experiences you know there's there's so many different types of women um and and queer people uh who have unique struggles and and you know fights that they're fighting and we need to be supportive of of all of that um so i'm i'm learning more about that uh, thanks to the internet and um especially thanks to Tumblr um and i start learning you know th- there's a lot of overlap between intersectional feminism and like that corner of the internet and queer the gay internet the queer internet so i start learning more about different queer identities and you know as rare as it was to like encounter uh lesbian representation it was even more rare to encounter bisexual representation. So I started learning about that. And I was like, Oh, I, I, I think I, I think I might be bi. Um, and so I'm, so I'm talking to my mom and I'm like, I think I might be bi. And she goes, I don't think you're gay. And again, by then I had been so conditioned to trust her over myself that I was like okay I guess I'm not the closet was made of glass by the way like I was everything and how I dressed my music tastes everything was so queer because I was queer the entire time um but you know so it's 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 funny in a very strange way that she claimed to know me better than I knew myself and I was just so Obviously gay before I even had any connections to gay culture. I was I was it I was in it. Um and she just didn't see it. So anyway, so I, I go back in the closet for another like three years. Fast forward to uh I'm 27, the year is 2016, uh, it's summertime, the new Ghostbusters is coming out in theaters. Um, and I'm like, of course I'm gonna see this in theaters. So uh, I go and I just, the second that Kate McKinnon comes out as Jillian Holtzman, I am, she captures my entire heart. I am just, I am enamored, obsessed. I am transfixed. I am just, I'm like mind boggled. And I go home, immediately go back onto Tumblr because I'd kind of taken a break from it. You know, i I been Focusing on work and stuff, immediately jump back onto Tumblr and follow every Jillian Holtzman, Kate McKinnon blog, fan blog I can find. And I noticed that it's, it's all just a bunch of queer people, just a bunch of queer women, queer non binary people. I'm the only straight woman in the Jillian Holtzman fandom, which is oh, this is a little suspicious, anyway. Um. <laughs> one of the Tumblr blogs that I followed, um, shared, so they, they had reblogged a post that was about compulsory heterosexuality. It was, I hit every bullet point. It, it's, it's like, uh, when you watch the movie Sixth Sense and then you get to the end and you're like, he was dead the entire time. Like I, I, by the time I got to the bottom of that post, I was like, I was a lesbian the entire time. Like it was like that level of like, oh duh. Again, closet was made of glass. This is the 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 value of of gay tumblr and 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 the existence of Kate McKinnon. And so it was an outlet for me to process a lot of these emotions. And also like Kate McKinnon continued to be a source of comfort for me because um a lot of my internalized lesbophobia had to do with this perception of lesbianism as being inherently sexual, like, like hypersexualized, um, inherently predatory. Uh, and just, you know, all of these negative things. And, you know, the blogs that I'm following are sharing interviews with Kate McKinnon, especially like group interviews where she's being interviewed with the rest of the Ghostbusters cast. And she's so... She's she shares so many tender, like physically intimate, like platonic phys- physically intimate moments with her co-stars. She's so like touchy feely, just in this warm way with her co-stars that's so sweet and so tender and so beautiful. And it was like like I I I kind of struggled to kind of put into words just how healing that was and how. Sadly, I needed to see that. And then another layer of that was there was this article that was written in 2005, or sorry, it was a review of a one-woman play that Kate McKinnon had done when she was, I think when she was in college. And uh, the article quotes a line from the play that goes, "Um, I don't know what to say to people when they talk to me because I have a big secret. I'm a really sad person and nobody likes to talk to sad people. And I am not a crier, but I read that and I just burst into tears. And it was just like, like, if you've ever cried in a way where like, you're just like, you're, you, you can like feel years of stuff just like releasing as you cry. Like I was just, I cried for what felt like a very long time. I don't know how long it was. It felt like really long time. And it just made, that, that one line made me feel so seen and understood in a way that I hadn't ever felt before. Um, and, you know, it, it ties back to the, the abuse because one, it gave me permission to feel sad. You know, here's Kate McKinnon, obviously playing a character, but still she's giving voice to this character who's saying, I'm sad. And she's taking up space as a sad character. Um, And again, with my mom, I wasn't allowed to be sad. So it it, it reminded me that my emotions are not shameful. And it also helped my healing process because I saw how these complete strangers, you know, Pink, Kate McKinnon, um, were making me feel seen and heard and validated way more than any conversation I'd ever had with my mom who, you know, claim to know me better than anyone. So, you know, if that was true, then why did my conversations with my mom more often than not, just leave me feeling really misunderstood and confused and ashamed while, you know, art made by complete strangers were actually helping me heal.
0: So here is another uh, building block for you as far as understanding who you are, and you know, your identity was briefly taken away, and by briefly, I mean, three years of you're starting to figure things out and you're having a couple building blocks, and your mom's reinforcement of you not being gay sets you back a few years. But now here comes Tumblr. And the Kate McKinnon Tumblr and the Ghostbusters, Kate McKinnon is a big part of that. Pink, you know, was a big part before that. And now both of these people, one gave you a voice and gave you space. And now here's this other person to fill in that space. So you're like three big moments of your life and and, and now you can... Uh, go to the next step uh, of what you need as far as understanding who you're dealing with, but most importantly, who you are and gain the confidence at that point to um, stand in your truth of who you are to make your final moves. And eventually you go to therapy. Uh, So what happens there?
1: I'd been discouraged from ever seeing a therapist, both because she thought all other therapists who weren't her were complete idiots. And also because, again, if I told anyone else about the conversations I would have with mom, then, you know, I would present things inaccurately and then they would convince me to withdraw from her, which would then... Allow me to sabotage my entire life and you know ruin my whole life, but I need to actually sit down and like talk to someone about this so uh, i I do um, I find a really wonderful therapist who you know of course at, at first we start with uh, unpacking my compulsory heterosexuality, uh unpacking my internalized homophobia, all of that um And I'll get in a fight with mom. And then later that day, I'll have a session with my therapist and I'll, I'll vent to her about it. And, you know, my therapist starts to kind of point out that like, you know, even if you're like, even if your mom is right, the things she says to you are not okay. Like if, you know, if, if her priority was really to communicate this concept to you, she could do it in a way that respected your boundaries. And, you know, I'm, I'm still very defensive of my mom and I'm still very worried that like, oh no, what if, you know, what if I'm misrepresenting things? And so I still have a lot of anxiety, but there is that part of me that's hearing what the therapist is saying. And it's like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew this wasn't okay. You know? And so there, there it's, I'm like, I, I'm still at, kind of at war with myself, but there's the feedback, you know, the feedback I'm getting from my therapist is, piled on top of this healing that I've been able to do, do, you know, uh, due to Pink's art and Kate McKinnon's art and, and, and the feedback that I I've gotten from grace, you know, it's kind of, it's the evidence is piling up. And so then there's this breaking point where um, I'm talking with my mom on the phone and my mom's in a writing group and there's this other woman who's my age. Uh, who mom is like asking my permission to give my number to this to this woman because she thinks we get along and mom is like mom is saying is like I don't I don't even know if she's gay I don't know that like I think you would just be good friends like I'm not trying to set you guys up because I don't even know if she's gay and if she's gay I don't know if she's single she's just kind of like going on this like cyclical ramble about like I don't think you two should date but I just think you'd be friends I'm not trying to pressure you into dating kind of thing. And I'm like, I get it. Based off of how mom was describing this other woman, this other woman sounds personality-wise a lot like my mom. And i am like, you know, you know, yeah, to be completely honest, she sounds more like someone I would, you know, kind of be friendly with versus wanting to like pursue dating. But I mean, like, sure, totally give my number her. Mom flips out she immediately is furious with me. she's saying how i'm I'm judging this woman before meeting her and da, 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 da. and she calls me a dyke bitch, which personally i I, I like the word dyke I used it with my friends um but there's a difference between using that word reclaiming that word and using it as a slur, and the way my mom curled it at me it was dripping with hate and anger and fury. And so that the way she said it was as a slur. I, I, I was like, please don't say that. And she, and she's like, what, like why? And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying really hard to unlearn a lot of negativity that I've internalized uh, associated with my sexuality. So like, if you think I'm being a bitch, just call me a bitch. Which by the way, name calling is never okay. Like that's a separate issue. But I, I, it was so important to me that she not use homophobic slurs that I was willing to like give her, I was like, you can call me a bitch. Like that, I'm allowing you to do that. Just please keep my sexuality out of it because I'm working really, really hard to separate any negativity from my identity, and she, mom, w- didn't hear it. She like was not. She's like, stop policing my language. Da da da. You're missing the point. You're completely missing the, the my point. You're focusing on completely the wrong thing. Da da da. da. And I just hung up on her. And I, 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 I was still a bit shocked because, as much abuse as she had, gotten me used to over the years she took my coming out as essentially permission to start using homophobic slurs against me next time she got mad at me and I just couldn't like I I I needed to reconcile that with the person that I saw her as because she's someone who prides herself on being the most empathic human being who ever graced this earth, she presents herself as someone who's incredibly perceptive and emotionally intuitive and incredibly sensitive to others' emotional experiences. For her to use that word against me in the first place was just like, I never thought she would do that. And it happened, like, in future fights she she used it a few times and then event like every single time I was like I would just repeat myself please don't use that word like please just leave my sexuality out of it please and it, it was like it was like three I think it took like three or four times for her to actually finally stop but the fact that it like the fact that she used it in the first place and then the fact that it took me explaining myself multiple times was just like she's not the person I. thought. Jeez. like that. It just like, it just broke something, you know, for me. Uh, and so the kind of part two of, of things kind of clicking for me, um, was, I'd always disliked my, my hair. I'd always had issues with it. And she had convinced me that, you know, the only person who could give me a good haircut was her hair stylist. And so, uh, and she, you know, did not live, uh, in the same town that I lived in with my godfather. So I would have to, every time I wanted a haircut, I'd have to visit her and stay with her for a while to get the haircut. Um, because she also wouldn't allow short visits. If I was going to visit her, I had to visit her for at least a week. So anyway, so I'm, I'm visiting her and I'm, I'm feeling extra insecure about my hair, uh, and how badly I need it cut. And we're having dinner and a randomly, she gives me that Regina George up-down look, and she goes, "You really do need a haircut." And I'm just taken aback. I'm just like, I don't like. I'm thinking, like, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, I, literally, my haircut was scheduled for the next day. I'm like, I don't, you know. But also, I was kind of hurt because that's that's a hurtful thing to say for something that like she knows I'm already insecure about. Um, so I just go, thanks mom, you know, kind of sarcastically again, she blows up. She is like, what do you, what's that attitude for? And I was like, you, like you, you had an attitude with me. You were insulting my hair. She's like, that is not an insult. Just gaslighting the hell out of me. And, and it's this huge fight. And so the next day uh, in the morning is my sister's dance. And then in the afternoon is, is, you know, our haircuts, we were both getting our haircuts. So I think because that's kind of been mom's MO is that, for the most part, when we're in public, the fighting kind of pauses, you know, our our fight is kind of on pause. And then depending, sometimes, by the time we go back to the apartment, everything's fine. It's, It's as if the fight never happened. Sometimes it continues. So its just kind of, you know whatever. but at least for the time we're like out in public, like the fight's on pause. And so we're at so we, we the fight just continue fighting, and the next morning, the fight continues she continues yelling and screaming at me,. Dah, dah, dah. we finally get to the dance bus. So I think I'm gonna at least have some moment where I just get to like not have her yelling at me. But instead, uh, she stands right next to me, and she's just like hissing in my ear, just like, just you know, don't you dare ruin this day with your sulking and da da da. Like which by the like, I wasn't, I wasn't like slamming doors or anything. I was just like, I was, I was rattled by hours of abuse. I had been, I had been kind of pre like up till that point, and so she's like, you better not, you better not ruin this day for for us and da da for your sister, da-da-da. just like incessant with with the accusations and the character assassination and it got to a point I just couldn't handle it anymore and so I calmly walk out uh the the dance studio and I just kind of like speed walk to uh this cafe that's across the street I sit down on the table and I just put my head in my hands and I just I just start crying because I, I don't even know what to do. I'm just, I'm just at my wits end. I don't know how to make this abuse stop. Like, I don't, I, I, like, I know, I know that she was Regina Georging me. Like, I know this and she just won't, but she won't stop like character assassinating me and attacking me. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm just completely emotionally depleted after a while she comes out and sits down i don't even look up because i just want to as long as possible i want to pretend that she's not even there and then she's just very calmly saying you know i talked to one of the other moms and told her what was ha- what had happened and you know she explained what you might be feeling and so you know i think i understand now and you know i i really think it's in both of our interests to start fresh and just like you know let go of everything and just to start fresh. Cause that's what we all deserve. And again, I, I'm, I'm just sitting there being like, I'm, I'm, I'm so hurt and I'm so angry, but, but also if she's giving me a chance to just like, if she, if she's giving me an opportunity to stop the abuse, I will take it. So I look up and I'm just like, I disagree to it. I'm like, okay. You know, again, like in that in that moment, I'm, I'm just realizing that first of all, like the fact that she had to talk to a complete stranger, the fact that I'm not allowed to tell anyone else about our conversations, but she can totally tell a complete stranger about what happened. And that when they tell her what I might be feeling, that has more validity than me ever trying to explain my own feelings, like actually from me. And it was just like, this realization of like, she, she's, she doesn't listen to you. She doesn't hear you. She's never going to see you. I, 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 I just accept, I just realized that. And so I, you know, I, I just accepted it and I, I just did my best to, you know, act like everything was fine when I was obviously deeply hurt, but I didn't, I I, I was just so relieved that the, like active abuse was was stopping that i was just like fine i'll take it you know my therapist shows me that these character assassinations are not okay and so i learn about like gray rocking and the importance of hanging up on my mom when these character assassinations start right so i'm shifting my behavior i'm withdrawing when mom starts getting abusive so when that happens and i withdraw it speeds up the uh, the the love bombing abuse cycle because as soon as she starts the abuse, I withdraw, and then she feels deeply. Lo- you know, I don't talk to her for like a week or whatever. She feels deeply lonely. She's not used to that, so then she love bombs, and at times that love bombing will include apologizing. And explaining how she wants to be better. She wants to be the mom I deserve. She's so sorry that she treated me so horribly. Then I want to give her the benefit of the doubt and I, and I do. So that's why it's a little bit like in, in some ways, yes. In other ways, the abuse continues because she is able to convince me that she's she wants to not be that like she wants to see me the way that i deserve to be seen basically and you know we even have we have these two three hour long conversations where we agree on these certain terms where you know next time she is feeling emotionally triggered we work out safe words and reminders that become my job next time that she character assassinate me next time that she, you know, again, she's emotionally triggered. I can say these things. I can remind her of these things. And that's going to help change her behavior. That's going to help her stop. And the next time that it happens, I do that. But no, that doesn't apply here. Because that's not what she's doing. Because she's not being abusive now. And I should, I'm, she has nothing to, she has no behavior to change because she's not doing anything wrong. So it's like we we have these like long conversations to like find solutions that next time she's in a heightened emotional state, she completely rejects.
0: So eventually, you know, you're working all these things out in, in therapy and you decide to go uh, low contact with your mom because you still wanted to communicate with your younger sister, you know, and give your sister a little bit of a lifeline in the sense of the army leave no person behind in, in a way Absolutely. So Absolutely. So, you know, you get to this point of, of low contact um, how have you been uh, dealing with things as far as your healing process? How has uh, your life been since, you know, this decision to go low contact?
1: I, I, one, of, one of the um, most validating elements of this whole thing is how much happier and how much more peace I have found since essentially cutting mom out of my life. Um, we, again, we, we talk very briefly, um, very, you know, very occasionally. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I got so much time back. I got so much, not just time in terms of like the time spent, um, you know, talking with her, but after we'd have a conversation, I would spiral, doubting myself, and you know, like, like, oh my God, what if I am this way? And how do I fix this? And da da And it's like I just I don't have that. You know, when I'm struggling with something, I I message my therapist about it, and I'm like, hey, like, I'm really struggling with this, and like, nobody. There's no yelling. There's no name calling. It's just you know, um, and. So yeah, I mean, obviously my therapist has been immensely helpful. Um, so I, I mean, I'm somebody who thinks everybody should be in therapy, regardless of, you know, levels of trauma. Have a therapist. Therapists are, are so helpful. Um, it takes a while to find the right one. Kind of like dating that way. It's like, you gotta, you gotta have a few first first dates, first encounters, and then you eventually find the one who clicks to you. Also, as a side note, Anyone who discourages you from seeing a therapist because they're because they think that if you see a therapist, the therapist will like want you to 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 distance yourself from them, that's a giant red flag. Anyone who discourages you from seeing a therapist is walking red flag. Um, you know, also something that's been so helpful is reading and hearing other people's stories uh, because you know, after being gaslit your whole life hearing another person's experiences mirror your own is just incredibly validating. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite books is Jeanette McCurdy's I'm Glad My Mom Died. And as I was reading that book, it was just like, I, I, it just, it just, it clicked. It was so, it was so powerful. Um, so validating. And it's, it's so helpful, you know, for, for anyone who's been gaslit. Um, also, uh, someone else's suffering doesn't invalidate my own. And so something that my therapist says a lot is someone else's broken arm doesn't make your broken nose hurt any less. Like you both need to heal it. Like you're both injured. You both need to heal it. Also something that I just started realizing because my mom prides herself on being sensitive, so sensitive and so empathic. And she is extremely sensitive but i but i learned the difference because my mom's sensitivity is not actually empathy because she is extremely sensitive to stimuli that affects her emotional state so like if she watches a movie where there's like an animal being abused she will cry and it will like it will deeply affect her and deeply upset her but that doesn't mean that she's empathic towards other people's emotional experiences because Real empathy is something that you bring to your interpersonal relationships. It's not just a response to stimuli. It's like you bring it to your relationships with other people. And empathy is something that you use the most in times of conflict. And in fact, conflict is when you most need to both give and receive empathy. And, you know, conflict is when her quote unquote, empathy would just be gone, right? So that, that I realized that's just her being sensitive to stimuli that affects her. But that's not really empathy. Um, and, you know, in, in my current relationship, um, you know, I've, I've been with my, my wonderful girlfriend for almost a year. And in that relationship, I'm learning what healthy conflict and healthy conflict resolution looks like. And it's such a, like in a, in a darkly funny way, like it's almost, it's almost funny to me how different my experience with her is versus both my experience with my mom. And even as a young child observing conflict between my parents, like it's just a completely different experience, um, with my girlfriend when conflict comes up we are always on the same side it's always us versus the conflict and even when we have hurt each other's feelings we are still like we're we're still bringing that honesty and that vulnerability to the table and you know even even when we're even when we are you know feeling triggered and and feeling in a heightened emotional state there is never any abusive language there is never any name calling there's never character assassination of any kind it's all just like you know it's 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 all just it's peaceful you know it's 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 it can be hard but it's still there's a, there's a peacefulness there um of you know these this is how I'm feeling this is why I'm feeling it I know you didn't mean to hurt me but it really hurt me and I'm I'm needing some time to heal, or I'm needing you to kind of um comfort me in these ways. This is what I'm needing to hear from you right now. You know, it's that sort of communication. Um and it's that is just really um it's comforting. It's, it's also a huge relief because when you grow up with a certain template, you know, you're you're always kind of scared, like and can I even have a healthier relationship, you know, but being in one, I'm, you know, it's like, oh, I, like, I, I can, cause I'm doing it. Um, so it's, that's, that's really, that's really powerful. Um, and, and really healing as well. You know, I'm allowed to mourn my mom, even though, you know, she's still alive, but like, I'm allowed to mourn the fact that I, I never really fully had a mom. And, um, I, you know, I've, I've also realized that a lot of healing is doing the opposite of what, of what my abuser did. So, you know, it's giving space to the emotions that she didn't allow me to feel. Um, it's, you know, enjoying hobbies that she thought were a waste of time. It's, you know, reinforcing my boundaries, um, and letting myself leave the people who disrespect me. She criticized me a lot for like wasting time doing things that I enjoyed or or watching things that I enjoyed, And she shamed me a lot for that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to just let myself enjoy things. You know, whether like, regardless of whether she might label something as stupid or useless or pointless or waste of time, I'm learning to just enjoy those things, enjoy those hobbies, enjoy those types of, you know, content, movies, music, whatever, you know? Um, And so, yeah, those are, those are my takeaways.
0: Well, Harley, I'm happy you were here with me today to talk, to share your story and to, to really give a voice for, to people who are going through uh, the exact same thing you went through to the adult children of narcissistic mothers um, who understand exactly uh, what happened to you. And today you help them a lot. So thank you for giving back to everyone and sharing your story with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: And once again, Harley, thank you for being a guest on our show today. And if you want to be a guest like Harley was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there is a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There's all of these instructions. Please read them all and send us an email at at NarcissistApocalypse.gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have our very own support group. Yes, we have our very own safe social network. So if you click on that support group button at the top of the page, it takes you to our support group. There we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on and for our group members, your peers, other survivors to answer you, validate your experience, and just give you all the support you need. We have episodes that never made it to air, and we have ad-free episodes as well. So please do join our support group if you need support. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. There they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you've been going through. They have every phone number, every website, every email address for shelters and domestic violence agencies. No matter how big or small your town is, you will find it on DomesticShelters.org. So please do visit DomesticShelters.org. It is a great free resource. And that is it for today's episode. So from myself and Harley, we hope you have a good night.